0: Everyone, so I know this is not formally a season of History Unloaded, but Danny and I decided that we were going to do one off episodes for various holidays. And so season. today,
1: oh, what? sorry, it's in 6.5 Creedmoor of the season, sponsor us.
0: <laughs> I like it. Uh, but I was going to say that this episode is geared towards spoopy season. <laughs>
1: I feel like nobody uses that anymore. Like that was like I didn't
0: think anybody really used it in the first place.
1: It was like a really brief meme about spooky.
0: And I don't actually know what it means. So Danny, explain spooky season.
1: You want me to explain it?
0: You should explain it because yeah, I don't I, remember what it was, but I made the joke.
1: I think that spooky is just a weird meme from a few years ago that for when things are kind of spooky and kind of funny. I think I could be
0: that's an don't amazing, go look it up on Urban dictionary. That's an amazing description of our podcast.
1: Kind of weird and kind of funny and not really either.
0: (laughs) Uh, So for this Halloween episode, we wanted to, well, just real quick, when we were planning a Halloween episode, I was informed that we could not talk about Sarah Winchester again. So we had to get a little creative. And so we decided that we were going to talk about um, kind of dark tourism since it kind of coincides with what we do with certain segments of firearms history um, and kind of exploring this weird relationship between sites of mourning and people's fascination with it. And I don't know if that was on the microphone, but my dogs are going to have a fight oh, while right. we have this conversation, but I'm just going to keep going because um, Callie hasn't made an appearance yet. But anyways, I digress. But um, the kind of the, the thought I wanted to start on and then we can go from there was at the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, there was a conference and one of the academic historians and, you know, they love to ruin everything, but they you know went up and they said that they thought it was really weird that as a Civil War historian, that people come up to them all the time. And when they say what they do, people's response is, oh, my God, I love the Civil War. And I just, but like, you think about yeah. it, like, that's like, oh yeah, I love that part of history, but like, that's kind of messed up. And so I figured that was a good intro. into.
1: That is, that is an excellent intro. And I would like for just a brief moment to defend all the people that love morbid topics. Like, I think it's okay to say, I love the civil war because you're, you love learning about it. You love studying it and it is okay. And we don't have to be snooty and like, be like, well, you're not allowed to love the Civil War because it's just a really terrible event. Like the people saying they love it, I think there is a recognition, because I would say that still, that I did it just the other day at our conference here. I was like, I love this. I was like, that's kind of weird to say, but you know what? We're going with it. Because- these are fascinating subjects and I love learning about it. Like it's really great to learn about. So I'm going to defend against those academics that say you can't like love a topic just because it's dark.
0: Well, what I think that's interesting because I feel like that's actually more controversial than, you know, we think. But I mean, obviously, I agree with that. I've talked a lot about loving dark tourism um, and dark tourism has a couple of different facets to it. Um, one is, you know, why people are drawn to sites of mourning. So battlefields, concentration camps. I don't know why those are my only two examples. Um, and then there's also a level of dark tourism, which is like people who are drawn to like, um, weird ritual ritualistic customs, um, around the world. And then the most frivolous of the dark tourism, you know, realm, which I think a lot of scholars would say is not actually dark tourism, which is ghost tourism. Um, and the boom of the commercialization of tragedy uh, through weird parking lot tours.
1: Yeah. And that one does seem to be the most trivial because it's like every building that is more than like 50 years old has to have like a ghost tour, it feels like. like oh, 100 percent. And it's just it's everywhere. And I'm definitely on the skeptic side of all of it.
0: And so, all the ghosts have to be like a hundred years old. Like they can't Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it can't be like Debbie who fell down the stairs like two weeks ago. No,
1: it's never her. It's always a super old ghost and it's right, always a super why can't why can't we have like a ghost in like a new build when like a construction worker fell off the roof? Is that
0: I will say though that New Orleans is doing, like, they're starting to incorporate like modern crime into their ghost That's tours. Nice. And so they do sometimes talk about like this, like, there's one where like a girlfriend, boyfriend get into a fight and the girl gets, you know, pushed off the roof. And so they say that there's haunting and that was not from that long ago.
1: So do you want to like break these down by like segments or jump sort of to like the top of the scale? So if ghost tourism is, sort of the commercial, like fully commercialized version of the scale. And I'm making up these, the spectrum as we go. So bear with me, but, and we'll say like that, like battlefields and like sites of like, not just like a ghost story, but like definite human loss and like battlefields, concentration camps to use the extreme end are the other side of the scale that are still like sites of active mourning. I don't know. Do we and I guess what would be our sort of midpoint in that? Dare I say, like a military firearms gallery?
0: What? Um, so I think that this is hilarious because this is probably something we should have worked out before we started recording. <laughs> no. Um, but I feel like we could so I I would say let's for the sake of time and Camila's, you know, meeting, uh, let's not cover ritualistic. Because then maybe we could do that next year if we happen to remember that because that's just a little bit different. That yeah, yeah, a little bit I think, further away from guns.
1: And yeah, the battlefields are sort of within our realm because we're ostensibly still a firearms history podcast.
0: But I think we don't need to focus specifically on ghosts. I think ghosts are going to come up right, within yeah, our yeah. conversation. Yeah. So let's focus on some battlefields and spooky historical sites that are sites of trauma and mm. give our opinions that nobody asked for.
1: Great. Well, I got one. Okay. <laughs> so, I think I am more on the side of as I as I talked about with the with like you can love the civil war and it's a little weird to phrase it that way. But you can enjoy learning about the civil war like if if you're not allowed to do that then I'm in big trouble cuz I've been doing that all my life. I I find joy in learning that history and learning the stories of the people that went through that i don't find joy in their experiences because they're really terrible experiences like people shouldn't have to go through that but i personally i get enjoyment out of the study and learning about that so i'm already on that side of that particular debate and i think i'm still allowed to have that opinion but a couple of years ago so my family still lives in western maryland my parents are in west virginia now but they're really close to the border Um, so I shouldn't dox them on the podcast. Um, but (laughs) we, when I go home, I often visit a civil war site with my dad. He was a history teacher. He's kind of inspired my love of history. And we grew up near like rev war sites and French and Indian war sites and civil war sites. And so we would go to them. And so now it's pretty regular that we go to a civil war site when I am home of some sort. It's usually a battlefield because we like the military history stuff.
0: Also, just as an aside, randomly, Danny and I went home for like a holiday, and like oh, yeah. I Where had a, me- I had a medical procedure, and then like we met halfway between our homes to go to a historic site together. But I can't remember. It
1: was it, wasn't uh, like Fort Washington. That's mm, not the right name.
0: No, that's not right. But it was like that. Whatever. Or like, necessity. So- Fort necessity, that battlefield that was totally or that ba- like that battle that was totally necessitated. No, that's not the right word. Uh, but was totally like because of a misunderstanding.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I digress. So,
0: we could do a whole podcast on that. But because, anyways, I sometimes join in.
1: <laughs> so I make it a pretty regular practice while I'm in that part of the country to go to the Civil War site. And some of the sites are like, you know, like Fredericksburg is basically completely built over. There's like a tiny little enclave of what was the battlefield and like the city of Fredericksburg built up around it before anybody thought, Hey, we should preserve this. Um, And the, on the other side of the spectrum for civil war sites, there's places like Gettysburg, which is pretty well preserved, but the town's kind of built out some since the battle, but most of the field still preserved. And then there's a place like Antietam where there's been almost no commercial buildup on the battlefield itself. There's a few houses close by. There's like the visitor center, but the battlefield itself is largely intact. And a place like that where you can walk the field and kind of see the lay of the land as it was. And I think you can experience, like you can feel the place more than you can at some other things. And I think that's important. Um, and so on a trip home a few years ago, as Kirsten and I walked around this battlefield, there's, a, there's an old family cemetery there. And so you can go through the cemetery and you see that. And there's like a there's still the farm and it's still privately owned, kind of in the middle of the battlefield. I think I'm getting all these details right. Anyway, the farm was there, and there was a barn there that I think burnt in the battlefield, but it has been rebuilt. Um, somebody's that's like lives at Antietam or is like a, somebody's going to be like, Danny, you're all wrong about the the farm. Anyways, you can make the assumption venue that,
0: now. that enough people listen to yeah. Me for practice.
1: You can rent that venue now for events, so you can have a party there, you can have a wedding there, you can, if you have the money, you can rent it out and say we're doing this and that's our event venue, just like many other modern event venue spaces. You just happen to be in the middle of like America's bloodiest battle, like single day battle, and as I was staying there, I was looking at this family cemetery that's not really related to the battlefield. I was looking at this venue space. I'm looking at the battlefield, and I'm all wondering. And it's all coming together, and I'm wondering on that particular trip. And it's like a beautiful like fall day. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Was, which is one of the reasons Antietam is my favorite. One of my favorite places is like I love that part of the country, and it's just a beautiful place. So all this is coming together, and I'm like, is it appropriate to have a venue space on this battlefield? And I would think to myself that it is. I think that it's okay. And I think that while we can be somber and reflective and I don't necessarily like when I'm at like memorials and certain things, like say Vietnam wall um, or the Vietnam war memorial in DC. And I see like a bunch of kids like screaming and running around. I'm like, this isn't a great look at the battlefield. I kind of took a different take. I think I'm okay with this. Like, is it this, this beautiful place? Is it it's burden to carry like our emotions For the rest of eternity, or can we also like maybe have some fun and some joy still on this place and not just be like depressed the moment we walk into a battlefield?
0: Yeah. So it's almost like trying to make the best out of a bad situation.
1: Kind of. And I don't think I will caveat this. I don't think that it's true for every place. Like I'm not ready to put an event venue like next to a concentration camp. Like, oh, God. But
0: or the Vietnam Memorial
1: or the Vietnam Memorial, clearly those things, I think there are still some things that are too somber for this, but I think there are some of these places of trauma where maybe it's time. Maybe it's the current space because Antietam is still largely natural. Like maybe it's something to do with the place and the, the amount of time that's passed, but I'm not totally against it.
0: Well, and I think though, that there's a a realm of disassociation. Like if it's Uh, And um, if it's like a building that happened to be on the battlefield, but nobody got murdered in there, you know, or it didn't necessarily get like overrun by like, uh, you know, a general or whatever as like a headquarters, like that to me is a little bit different than like just being out on the battlefield. Um, But then, so what's interesting and it's two things. One aside is that like, if you're getting married on like actual, like, federal government land there's a lot of really weird like requirements like you can't sit down like there can be no chairs cuz i l- i looked into getting you know married at like yellowstone as well but then i also really wanted to get married so now i'm this person at the eternal light peace memorial in gettysburg and partly because if you haven't been to that um, part of the well of course you haven't been to gettysburg then you passed the eternal light peace memorial i think it's like the second stop on the um auto uh, tour but it's this you know site that was erected um overlooking the battlefield but it was i want to say it was like the 50th anniversary um of the battle it was something like that because there were still veterans who were alive and it was basically a reuniting of the country. And so there were Confederate soldiers and there were union soldiers and they all came to dedicate this memorial. And then at the top of the memorial is a flame and the flame can never be extinguished. Um, So like if it's raining or whatever, the flame is always going. And I just like, for me, like, I just thought that that moment of unification and the, the, you know, metaphor of the flame was a really beautiful sentiment that would, you know, Marry well with the wedding. Uh, See what I did there, but you know. But then, as I got a little bit older and I looked back at it, you know, it was kind of like, oh, I guess that is morbid. I'd never thought about it that way because I'd always thought about it in this really positive way of making, you know, something beautiful out of something so tragic.
1: That's that's really interesting because that's even like that's just sort of picking a spot on the battlefield to get like. To get married, you know, because the one I'm talking about, I guess, is a little bit different because there's like a still a little piece of private land. And it's like been effectively used as an event um, space. And then there's two like Antietam itself, like every year is a big Fourth of July concert. Um, I don't know what it looked like the last few years with COVID and stuff, but like that was the Fourth of July thing that we went to as kids was there's a giant concert on the battlefield there's a band like a huge band um, like the Maryland orchestra or something like that. The Maryland national guard rolls out a battery of artillery and they play the 1812 overture with cannons, which is awesome. And they're, you know, you're firing cannons in celebration on a battlefield where cannons were like fired in anger. Like there's some, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but there's something there. And it's like a big celebration of America's independence on the site of tragedy. And you're now, and that's not on the private property that is on like, the public grounds of the battlefield where like, and part of like the Confederate line, I think would have been, you know, in that position. So it, it's where fighting took place. It's, you know, there's none of those sort of caveats that it's like a modern memorial or a modern event space. It was just like a big concert. Everybody's partying, celebrating, having a good time. It just happens to be on this battlefield. And you're, um, I think you thinking about doing a wedding in that kind of space is a little bit closer. Cause that would, If I'm understanding that where you would do have the ceremony, that would be just on the battlefield, not necessarily on like a nearby space. Sidebar, that also is, I think I've talked about this before when we listed some of our favorite objects, but that's where there's two Whitworths. If anybody wants to see an actual Whitworth cannon, FYI.
0: Um, so I just like was listening, but I ran and got a book. There's a good book. I haven't read through the whole thing. So I apologize in advance because it does talk about like sites of mass violence. So I have no idea what his opinion on that is, but, um, the book is called shadowed ground. Um, and it's, uh, America's landscapes of violence and tragedy. And there's some really interesting topics of conversation because you were, you know, mentioning, like uh, battlefields where things are preserved. But then there's also this kind of interesting um, conversation that he has, um, and he says, um, and this is through the example of Salem, Massachusetts, But, um, you know, looking beyond the question of why some tragedies inspire memorials, whereas others are ignored or effaced. And it's this conversation of, like, there are some things, like battlefields, where we commemorate it, and then it is there forever, and we, you know, interpret the history of it, but then there are also also things that happen, obviously, everywhere, that were historic that we don't want to talk about anymore, and then as a result, it barely gets a plaque or even any acknowledgement, and the, the The example he was using was the fact that the Salem witch trials, uh, which also would have been a really interesting topic of conversation for this podcast, um, really only was this tiny, tiny part of Salem history. Uh, There was a much larger industrial component, but that... um, the locations of where the women were, you know, hung or hanged. Sorry. Um, You don't like nobody knows where it is. There's no memorial. There's no plaque. So there's like a weird, creepy, like, Ha, you know, museum um, about it, but that's not like everything else has been completely expunged from the area um, because it's not something that, you know, they want to be remembered for. And so it is kind of interesting, like, you know, what what survives um, because people feel that it's something to be remembered and what doesn't survive because it's something we don't want to remember. And th- wow. That was like...
1: Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and... I think too, there's an aspect of like how participants want to be remembered because with a civil war, at least, you know, something like the Salem witch trials, we don't really have the victims. How do I want to, you know, they didn't give voice to that, but with the civil war, the veterans for many decades after they wrote about their experiences, they visited the battlefields themselves. Sometimes they reenacted it. Like there's, there's all these really interesting facets where the veterans themselves seem to kind of give a blessing to like these spaces can still be used. Um, That's that's probably going too far to like, and I'm like, I'm sure there were veterans that were too traumatized to return those to, to those events. I'm sure there's, that's putting a lot on them, but I think to at least some extent, the veterans themselves spoke to how they wanted these places to be remembered. And, Some they did really positively, some, you know, that we can debate how and why they did what they did for a long, long time. But I think the important point is that within their lifetimes, these things were starting to be commemorated on the battlefield and they had some input on how um, how they were. And at least in particular with Civil War veterans, it seems like like I said, Sometimes they participated in reenactments. Um, they got together and like shook hands and were drinking buddies on the battlefield, like many years later. So that plays a role, I think, in how we are okay with using the spaces.
0: There's some interesting scholarship too um, from the 1890s. The scholarship's not from the 1890s. It's about the 1890s um, because this idea of commemorating um, tragedy becomes incredibly popular in the United States. Um, So um, this period, I've weirdly actually done scholarship on this, but it's been so long since I thought about it. Um, You know, when you get into like the 1890s, the memory, the collective memory of the Civil War is starting to fade. And so people, uh, the people that are there, you know, the soldiers are, you know, not, you know, are dying off. And, you know, and so there's this like desire for, you know, the country, um, individuals and in the, you know, which ultimately make up the collective to hold on to it because they don't want to forget this horrible time in our history as to not repeat it. But as a result, you start to get, um, like, um, Trump-boy art, you know, trickery art. You see a lot of that. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's a gun hanging on a wall. Uh, my name is William Harnett and the faithful cult. Um, or it's a lot, a lot of time, you know, civil war uniforms and, uh, like either a gun or like a trumpet or like something. And this this art is to simulate reality. Um, And then at the same time, you get a lot of people collecting the artifacts. So we're talking about, you know, not that long past the war, but people basically like there's this like, like you said, there's almost an approval uh, from some of the people that, you know, lived it. But then now people are like, we're starting to forget and we can't forget um, what happened. Um, but I think it's interesting though, cause there's, there is this mindset of like, you know, we don't want to forget something so terrible, but then there are things like murders and things that happen in our country that, you know, like, I don't know, like, is there a site for like the Bath school massacre in the 1920s?
1: That I don't know. And I think it was, I mean, not to like bring it too modern, but I think it was just announced too, that they're demolishing the school at Uvalde. Like,
0: Oh yeah, the- yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: They're going to demol- instead of keep the school op- in operation um, or even just as a silent memorial, they're demolishing the site. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they've announced plans to build a memorial on top of where the school was, but they've definitely announced that they're demolishing the site, demolishing yeah. the school building.
0: Um, I'm trying to pull up. I, I, I'm Googling if there's a, like a historic site, but I'm not seeing anything, which makes me feel like there's not because I feel like it'd be the first you know thing you pull up. Um, you know and that is one thing that you see like if you look at the battlefields and really anywhere um, you know you also see so you see these monuments and I'm not getting into the monument conversation but you see these like completely restored or preserved parts and then there'll be like these outbuildings that are totally decaying that we're not protecting Um, and there's often a lot of times like old buildings just as you're driving through a neighborhood in like Delaware or something where the house is like totally gone and no but he's preserving it or trying to save it. And you wonder like how those, you know, the, how those choices are made.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's, it's often very odd when you're in like the historic preservation world, like what gets preserved versus what, versus what doesn't get preserved. And, you know, there's some ongoing debates about this, like, um, Coltsville being a good example. Um, and some things fall by the wayside and some things get preserved and it, Sometimes it just, it almost seems a little random. I think for these, for sites and even it's true for civil war sites, you know, Fredericksburg is the heights at Fredericksburg are incredibly tough site. Like if you put yourself in what happened at that day when the union charge at Fredericksburg and against the stone wall, there don't even reach the stone wall really, and suffer enormous casualties in um, just a suicidal assault. And you think about what those guys had to go through and what happened that day. What, how did that one not get preserved? Cause it's, it's not, you know, it's not officially the bloodiest single day like Antietam is, but it's a pretty bad day. And that one is just like, yeah, we're just going to build this up. And Antietam, yeah. it's, you know, Sharpsburg's a small town. So that it doesn't grow like Fredericksburg does, but how one got preserved and one didn't, is really interesting, even though they're two really, really tragic sites. Um, It's not even like, you know, a random historic house doesn't get preserved because a developer buys it and this cool old family lived there. And the next, you know, the neighbor's one did get preserved. It's not even that kind of discussion. It's like, these are really, really tragic sites. And they're not even like the mundane. And one gets preserved and one doesn't really.
0: It's almost like whatever some like little old lady Wanted to preserve in like the 1950s.
1: Yeah. It, and a lot of times that's it. It's like somebody champions the cause and finds the resources to preserve it. Um, that's a big part of it, is if the site had a champion when the when a time to protect it. And um, that's certainly an aspect of how things get preserved.
0: So here's something. Um, okay, we talked about like marriage and weddings and events on the space. Um, and I guess I've got two parts to this. Um, how do you feel? So, like, there was this article, um, I don't know, it's probably happened a bunch, about, like, people at Auschwitz or I can't remember which, you know, the I can't remember which concentration camp asking that people stop taking, coming and taking artsy photos of them walking on the train tracks. And, you know, nowadays with a, you know, very photo selfie oriented culture, you know, what do you think i'm intrigued because i'm not quite sure about like the way people take photos if you take photos how you behave when you go to those things you know is it okay for your kid to be running around having a good time you know on the you know on ultimately an open mass grave on a battlefield um you know or is that a good thing to have you know life you know be there so what do you i just with no preparation danny how do you feel about photography on the battlefields
1: and my answer is probably you know i'm going to take a cop out and say it's different for different sites because you see i mean if you go to antietam in the summertime you will see it there you will see people taking photos in um in bloody lane on the sunken road you'll see people taking photos at the dunkard church um you know where you know ironically where like battlefield photography emerged in the U.S. with mm-hmm. Antietam especially um, and that famous photo of the church um, and you'll see people taking you know they'll be taking family portraits or, or so, and they'll be taking selfies and they'll be doing the Instagram thing and it's really tough because how can I say I'm kind of okay with it there because it's never bothered me there but I'm not okay with it at Auschwitz, is it the scale because so many more people died and it was, you know, at least with Antietam, you can kind of make the argument that people had some agency in what happened to them at the battle to a degree. Cause it's two sides meeting uniformed enemy combatants and you have a way to fight, you know, whatever side you're on, you are armed, you are fighting the opponent. Like there's some agency in that, even if you're like under orders to do, you know, to fight with at, like penalty of death, if you desert, right? Like, so you kind of don't have a way out, but at least you have like a musket to fight off your opponents. People at Auschwitz have nothing. They are subject to extermination. Uh, and on a scale, it's far greater than Antietam. And I mean, I
0: would think that I, I, I get that. And I think it's, you know, more about like taking photos for clout. Um, right. with that particular, but I would also like to say that I mean, don't think that everybody had agency to make decisions during the Civil War because a lot sure. of times, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Um, southern people would send their you know, enslaved person as a proxy, yeah. Part um, of the battlefield of Antietam
1: is that like the supply wagons were being moved by enslaved people, so there were enslaved people present at the battle. So I, I was thinking more in terms of the combatants, um, yeah. so I overlooked um, that. But then what I was going to follow up with, but then I reached this dangerous point is like, I hate to be crass about this, but I can't think of another way to say it. And I'm, this might be what gets me canceled, but does that just mean that I have like a body count where I'm like, this is okay and not okay. Because Antietam's a few thousand killed, 23,000 casualties in total, and Auschwitz is a million. Like, And I'm okay at Antietam and I'm not at Auschwitz. But I'm also, but to your point, there's also a difference in photography because photography can be, you know, it's an art form, so it can be very commemorative. So somebody could be taking a photograph of Auschwitz to commemorate their experience there, to showcase the tragedy. You know, that could be part of the, the photograph they're taking is a commemoration. And there can be just the glamorization of themselves in this place. And I think that's where you also have to think about the attitude, but then you're like on this weird case by case, like a, you know all right your photo is cool because you're not wearing a trendy hat and your photo is not cool because you are, like you put a filter on it like what? that
0: oh filters
1: like oh, even. that to me seems weird and it's like it's a, a it's a very complicated issue i think of you know because i think the easy answer to say all oh, these dumb Instagrammers taking pictures at outsource how could they um and to i think that's true to an extent but i also don't think that all photography there is in that vein and i and i guess what i'm saying is really that i'm more okay in with photography at a place like antietam because maybe it's the amount of time that's passed maybe it's the scale of what happened there maybe it's the agency of the combatants i, I don't know but
0: i think i think that part of it and this is me projecting onto you but i think part of it is that it, at least at sites in the united states for us there is a personal connection to it right. so it's almost like a little bit of like ownership of the history um, you know, or, you know, where you are from Danny, you know, like you may, like, I have, you know, I have an ancestor that fought at the battle of Gettysburg, you know, so not that I know him or means I know, you know, what the experience was, but I think there's a level of like, you know, we're not necessarily the stranger walking into the historic site, you know, this is a part of our history, our collective memory. Um, but I don't know. Uh, but that was also made me think about like, um, swag you know than like the gift shop and the monetization and that actually is going to get me also to a few minutes on ghost tourism because i do want to talk about this i Uh, I would also say that i regret making jokes about spoopy um at the beginning of this episode when we have gone so deep into like a a real dialogue but it's too late now it's too Um, late i can't
1: take it back but but so i was also going to say i'm guilty of this instagram phenomenon Oh. Like I'm sitting here judging people taking photos. I've taken selfies at the battlefield. Like how many, like part of my Instagram bit is that anytime I see a cannon at a battlefield, I go look at the muzzle ring to see like the foundry data. And Kirsten almost always takes a picture of me doing that. Cause it looks ridiculous. Here's a firearms con curator looking down the barrel of a cannon. How unsafe. Ha ha ha. And I do that almost every time I look at a civil war cannon and invariably the cannons on the battlefield. So I therefore am Guilty of this thing that I'm now trying to work out in my mind. Is it okay?
0: (laughs) Would you stick your finger? (laughs) Would you stick your finger in the in the hole in a wall where there was a bullet? Because that's a big thing. People do that. I don't know. Danny's like, could you stop trying to cancel me in this? Yeah, like, what is this? Is this
1: just this one giant ambush of Danny? Um, (laughs) I want to say no, but also. I touch every cannon I come across. So maybe.
0: Oh, so here's something. Now I'm like, we I'm like swag and moving forward. But um, this is really kind of nuts. The Jenny Wade house. So Jenny Wade was the only civilian to die during the Battle of Gettysburg. She mm-hmm. was shot while she was making bread. Um, and there is a hole in the door allegedly where the bullet came in and you know shot her in her or lower back or something. Mm-hmm. There is now a myth that if you stick your finger, like it's your ring finger, in the hole, that you will get married within a year. Whoa. <laughs> so all of these women go to this Jenny Wade house and they stick their finger in this you know hole in the door that was you know allegedly the hole. i say allegedly because i kind of don't buy it like i feel like some, well, yeah and like once some you're in gr- like some enough. karen in the 1950s when they were building the historic site like because it's just too perfect of a of a hole but that's right. my own weird conspiracy theory but you you know so if you believe that that's you know the hole where it came through you know now you have people sticking their fingers in it trying to you know like manifest uh an engagement and it like could not be more morbid. I mean, somebody literally like died, you know, from the bullet going through that door and killing them.
1: And you're effectively trying to catch the bouquet with like their bullet wound.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just like yeah, that's that- that's a
1: really good example. That I, I didn't know that story or the myth. I mean, I knew about the story, but Jenny Wade being the one that was killed. Um, I didn't know it was while she was making bread. Like,
0: I might have made that a lot to I thought she was like making like um mutton or some shit for like the soldiers or something. I mean, because, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean that's noble feeding feeding like people that are potentially dying or whatever. Um Well, and
0: I think there's a good episode too. Um maybe we should like Ask our followers, like, what are what we say good episodes would be since we have we struggle to remember them. Yes. Um, uh, but a good episode would be to talk about the you know, latter half or the 1950s and onward, like, movement for historic preservation. Um, uh, because that's its own layer of like, what are we even seeing on a historic, you know, on right, a historic right, right. site? Because yeah, we're yeah. seeing what somebody in the 1950s, 60s, you know, wants us to see, and that's why, like, I argue that maybe this part of the door isn't actually the bullet hole um, or did they carve it out? So it was perfect. I mean, it's just weird. Um, well, and but-
1: that gets, that's really interesting because there's part of me that's like, A, I have several points that are like all running around in my mind right now. The first one is that when you spend any amount of time in like, a field that deals with provenance of a thing an artifact a place or whatever you begin to realize just how much of it is like there's some problem like the house being redone in the 50s and that's a little perfect did you know I and mean, we've talked about provenance for artifacts and I think sometimes the the same is true for places themselves. So there's that always running in the back of your head. Anytime you visit a site, even that's like well presented as this is the thing. And we know for real, you're always like, as the historian, and museum person in me is always like, is it really like, how <laughs> is this problem? Is it perfect? Um, so the answer that.
0: is like always no.
1: <laughs> and if it's less so, then I'm like more eager. Like I'm st- like weirdly, like I'm okay with touching. It's like, ah, it's not the real one. I'll just touch it anyways. Um, but then there's also the part of me that like, I do feel the power of, like, I think the place and stuff has meaning and power, and or else I wouldn't be in this field, right? Like, artifacts, being able to connect with the artifacts is why I love museums is like, I connect with the stuff that was there. Even if we have to wade through mountains of stuff that wasn't actually a part of it, if mountains of provenance problems, eventually you do get to something that was there and was historically important. And that is very meaningful. And I think the same is true of places. When you stand on the battlefield at Antietam, I've had many experiences where I like, I go out on the battlefield and this is a very moving experience. There's, There's meaning in that place so that's like that's my other caveat and then there's the third one which i get the desire to just touch the stuff like we complain about it all the time in museums like people just want to touch stuff people want to like ruin our art. you know people want to touch the art and they shouldn't touch the art. but i get it people want to touch the stuff because it is a connection so like when you're at a place that offers that opportunity to touch something historic or like part of the building that was there or whatever I get the desire to do it. So it's it's this very I don't know. I I say all that to be very confused about if I would try and get engaged by sticking my ring finger in the hole and the Jenny Wade door.
0: Yeah. So I was just thinking as you were talking um, that because Camila has a hard out, um, not that anybody cares, uh, but what you don't know is Camila has a hard out. Um, I'm thinking, Danny, that we find some time and make this a part two, because I think that we talked about some stuff that's, you know, really interesting. At least I think so. I think this is the closest to like documenting the conversations we used to have when I was at the museum just like offline but then I also think we need to talk about swag and profiting off of you know tragedy but then at the same time you know profiteering you know during the war Um, but then also I think it's kind of interesting because you touched on artifacts and wanting to touch the stuff but we've talked about the dark tourism of place but not you know the dark tourism of a gun that was used in a murder. So, Danny, well, would you like to extend this conversation?
1: I would, and here's the teaser for part two. As as I've condemned myself already for taking selfies on the battlefield, I have a cup from Antietam that says, and it's this really great plastic cup, and it's got like the battlefield logo and stuff on it. And I like bought it because I was in the gift shop, which was like right in the middle of the battlefield. There's fighting happened there, or nearby, and on the cup that I'm drinking my sodas out of at home, it says the bloodiest day in American history.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got things that say I heart Gettysburg. Yeah. Um, yours wins. But then, you know, to also preview the next episode, I frequently wear a shirt that Danny bought me that is from Gettysburg, the movie, but still a real event that says, let's go surprise Harry Heath. And Stand they're by wearing shirt no
1: matter what. <laughs>
0: and they- and they're wearing party hats. And like, I think there's a balloon and like, um, like one of those things that goes, I don't know what they're called.
1: Kazoos? No.
0: No, not a kazoo, a party thing that's like oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. it's like you
0: know. a it's like a lizard tongue when you <laughs> blow into it.
1: Lizard tongue, that is its name. <laughs>
0: that is a hundred percent. So let's let's leave it at that the bloodiest day, coffee mug, and surprising Harry Heath on the battlefield of Gettysburg, and then we will pick up on swag and other spooky things.
1: No follow. Thanks for listening.
0: <laughs> Talking soon apparently.